My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to dive into this book together, uh, but let's pray and ask the Lord to meet us here in these pages. Gracious God, thank you that you are a God who speaks. And Lord, we pray as we look into your word that we would be a people who hears. Uh, help us to see you. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to be changed by the truth of your gospel. Lord, we need you. Uh, we are going to see our need for you in a stark way, so may you meet us, Lord, with your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as, as we've said, today we, we begin a new uh, series, a new journey through an often overlooked book of the Old Testament, the book of Judges. And uh, it's often overlooked because it's pretty bleak and uncomfortable. I mean, it's filled with violence and chaos. As Keith mentioned earlier, if you tried to put this thing to film, it would get an R rating and it would deserve it. Um, again, I, I know some of the middle school boys have been excited about this and, and talking about uh, getting into this book, never been so motivated to come to church, right? Um, but what's, what's particularly troubling about this book uh, is that the chaos and violence that we read about here it, it originates from God's people, Israel. So it's not a portrait or a story of God's people standing firm against the tides of evil and so on, but rather it's a story of God's people capitulating and, and succumbing to evil. A picture of what happens when they fail to carry out God's mission on God's terms, when they forget the Lord and, and what He's done for Israel, when they fail to, when they underestimate the, the power of the world's influence and decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. It is truly one of the darkest chapters in the story of God's people. And so, why are we going to spend several months looking at it? Um, we believe what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, and that all Scripture includes the book of Judges. God has a word for us in this book, a word of warning and a word of hope, a word that I believe we desperately need to hear as we consider you know, what does it look like for us to carry out our mission to make Christ known in, in a world that is increasingly uh, driven to do what is right in their own eyes and a world where the church is just as tempted toward that as everyone else? And so, so we need this book, and the book starts by bringing us right into the story of Israel's mission at the time specifically their mission to take possession of the land that God promised to give them. A mission, as, as we're going to see, they ultimately stop short of completing. Uh, they carry it out on their own terms instead of God's. Uh, but they start off well enough, and verses 1 to 15 kind of give us a snapshot of what God's mission is supposed to look like uh, for ancient Israel at this point in the story, how they're supposed to be clearing the land for something beautiful that God is going to do in and through His people. So, if you look again at verse 1, 
you notice, uh, you'll notice that the book of Judges picks up exactly where the book of Joshua left off. Uh, it starts, uh, which Joshua is the previous book here. Joshua is now dead, but the land is not fully conquered. And so the Israelites are inquiring of the Lord, what's next? Who shall go up for us to fight against the Canaanites, uh, uh, to fight against them? But it, it's worth stopping and asking a question. Why in the world is Israel trying to conquer the Canaanites and take their land? Like, that alone sounds a bit rude and unfair, to put it mildly, right? This is the kind of stuff you teach your kids not to do. If someone else is playing with a toy, you don't just take it. So, so why would the Lord give this as Israel's mission? To make sense of this story uh, and to make sense of where we're going through the book of Judges, we need to understand where we're at in the overall biblical story. We need to read this uh, in light of the story of God's people that, all, that actually takes us all the way back to the beginning in Genesis and God's plan for creation. If you, think of, if you think of God's creation in the beginning as kind of the blueprint, this is what God envisions for all of humanity uh, in His creation to, to be His people in His place, under His rule, enjoying His blessing for the sake of His glory. That was the blueprint. Uh, that plan was spoiled by the fall. Uh, basically, Adam and Eve, when they decided uh, to, to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong, when they rejected against God's rule, they essentially tried to take over the building project and, and complete it on their own terms. And, and that was rebellion that brought the whole project to a halt. Um, and it brought them under uh, the curse of sin. So the sin that separates them from God, the sin that spoils God's good creation, it looked like the project was over before it had barely begun. And yet, what was lost in the beginning, God promises to reclaim and renew through a man named Abraham and his descendants. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, if you've grown up with, in church, you'll probably remember Abraham. It plays a big deal in the Old Testament, in Genesis 12, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation and to bless all peoples of the earth through him. So he, what, what was lost in the beginning, he's going to renew and reclaim it, and he's going to do it through this guy and his descendants. And part of that promise is to give Abraham and his descendants a special land, the land of Canaan, a place where God can dwell with His people once again. And that story takes several twists and, and turns over the next few books. Abraham does become a great nation. Uh, he has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. So they become this great nation. Uh, for, for part of that time, they end up as slaves in Egypt, uh, and, and God rescues them from slavery. He brings them out uh, through Moses. He gives them a covenant. He makes a special arrangement with them to be His people, and He will be their God. He gives them the tabernacle where they can worship Him as He deserves. And so, so the story continues to move forward. But by the end of Deuteronomy, God has fulfilled so many of His promises, but Israel's still not in the land. They're standing on the threshold. They're on the banks of the Jordan, ready to go over 
now under Joshua's leadership, because at this point Moses has died. And, and that's what the book of Joshua, the one right before Judges, tells us all about the conquest of the land where God is with His people Israel as they drive out the inhabitants and conquer the different cities. Uh, and then God gives them, he, he guides them as to which tribes should receive which land as an inheritance and so on. And yet, in the book of Joshua, the mission is not completed. It's not yet over. In Joshua 13, we're told that there remains very much land to possess. And similarly, in chapter 23, as Joshua comes to the end of his life, and, he, and as he charges the leaders of Israel what to do next, he tells them, 23 verse 4, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain. In other words, the ones we haven't conquered yet. We've already divvied them up, along with the nations I've already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised. God promises to give His people a place, to give them a land. And that brings us to the book of Judges where Israel is now continuing that mission after Joshua. But that still doesn't answer the question of why is this the mission? Why drive out the current inhabitants of the land? I mean, I can get it how God promises to give them a place. I can even see maybe how, how that place is, is essential to God fulfilling His other promises to bless all nations through that people. But isn't it a bit unfair and downright immoral to take the land when other people are already there. I mean, how is that different from the colonialism and imperialism of, of recent centuries or, or even from the genocide of power-hungry regimes in the world today? Why, why is this okay? We need to ask those kinds of uncomfortable questions if we're going to understand this story and if we're going to understand our faith. What, why is this the mission? Well, the first thing we have to recognize is that Israel's conquest was not only God giving them the land, it was also God judging the Canaanites for their idolatry. So it's not just God giving Israel the land, it's also God judging the Canaanites for their idolatry. If you go back to Genesis 15, uh, another one of those places where God promises Abraham he's going to make him a great nation and give him a land. He tells him that his descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt. But then he says this in, in Genesis 15, 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites being another term that, uh, to refer to those who live in Canaan. So, so think about what, what God is saying here. God is going to take away the land from the current inhabitants because their sin is so great, but He's not going to do it until He can no longer put it off. The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is going to be patient with them until He must deal judgment, and His judgment lines up with His deliverance of His people. So, the conquest isn't just giving the people of the land, it's also judging the idolatry of those in the land currently. 
And Moses says the same thing to Israel in Deuteronomy 9.4. He says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you that it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. No. It's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It's God's judgment on their idolatry. And if you want to read the gory details of what their idolatry resulted in, you can read Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 18, and that kind of unpacks the kind of stuff God says, I will not tolerate this. It must be judged, and I don't want you around it. And, and even as Judah gets to work in Judges 1, even the nations who are being conquered seem to recognize their defeat as God's judgment. So if you look again in Judges 1, verses 4 to 7, then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. It's kind of gross, right? But look at verse 7. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, God has repaid me. Even in his own defeat, he recognized God was judging his sin. And, and so, the conquest is God's judgment on the Canaanites for their idolatry and wickedness. The second thing we need to realize about Israel's mission here is that essential to keeping their covenant was rooting idolatry from the land. And so the conquest is not just God's judgment on idolatry through Israel, it's also His protection of Israel from idolatry. We need to root it out, get rid of it. And that was the heart of Moses' instructions in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. That was the heart of Joshua's instructions back in Joshua 23. He says this again in his kind of deathbed speech. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Keep the covenant with God. Turning aside from it, neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of their names of their gods, or swear by their gods, or serve their gods, or bow down to their gods. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you've done to this day. It's about keeping the covenant. And, and Joshua warns them, if you fail to drive them out, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So, if you're preparing to plant a field or a garden, but it's riddled with noxious weeds, before you can plant that garden, you have to get rid of those noxious weeds. Otherwise, if they remain, they will ruin your crops, 
or, or if you're planning to build a building, you have to first clear the ground of any obstructions. Uh, otherwise, your foundation's going to be unstable, and if the foundation's unstable, the entire structure will be compromised. In the same way, God will not tolerate idolatry among His people or in His place. Israel's mission in Joshua and, and the mission they're supposed to complete here in Judges is to clear the land, prepare it for the new thing God is doing. As one author writes, the Canaanite system symbolizes oppression and inherently invites idolatry. And any remnant of it in the land will mean that God's will is compromised. Israel's God will not be properly worshipped in the presence of other gods, and God's purposes will not be realized. And so Israel has a mission. They need to clear the land. They need to drive out the idolatrous inhabitants, inhabitants and, and take the land that God promised so that God's plan and God's glory can flourish. That's what this is aiming at. And when we read the beginning verses of Judges, they seem to start off pretty well. Judah goes and, and, and has some success. They defeat Bezek and Jerusalem and, and Hebron through verse 15, uh, Judah being one of the, those 12 tribes of Israel. But as we keep reading, uh, before long, the narrative takes a turn, and we begin to see a little failure mixed in with the success until after a while, all we're reading about is failure by the end of the chapter. And, and so that brings us to the next part of the story where, you know, if, if the, in verses 1 through 15 were kind of this assignment to finish clearing the land, verses 16 to 36 show us ultimately how Israel stops short of their job. They don't complete the mission. And again, we see some victory, right? They're, they're not entirely doing a bad job. Simeon, which is another tribe, they capture Zephoth, and Judah goes on to take Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron. Joseph takes Bethel. Uh, but in verse 19, even though the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And in verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin to the, in Jerusalem to this day. And that phrase, did not drive out, that becomes the drumbeat for the final section in the chapter. Seven more times we read those words. Manasseh did not drive out. Ephraim did not drive out. Zebulun did not drive out. Asher did not drive out. Naphtali did not drive out. By the time you get to the tribe of Dan in verses 34 to 36, the conquest is now kicked into reverse gear. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did, not, they did not allow them to come down to the plain. That's not how this is supposed to work. Israel is stopping short of their mission. And you might think, well, 
I mean, Israel did most of what they were supposed to do, right? I mean, they clearly have control of the land, even if they haven't rooted out all of the inhabitants. I mean, putting them into forced labor, that's just as good as driving them away, right? And is it really their fault if they couldn't drive everyone out? I mean, iron chariots, that's no joke. And after all, a B or a C, that's still a passing grade, right? I mean, C's get degrees. And so, so what's the big deal if Israel stopped short of completing the mission entirely? They got most of the way done. Well, there are some things in life where the difference between most of the way and all of the way is relatively insignificant. I can live with most of the way done when it comes to mowing my lawn, right? If I don't get to do the edges every week, I'm okay with that. I can live with most of the way done when it comes to decluttering my office. In fact, I can live with half of the way done for a long time when it comes to decluttering my office. But what about most of the way done when it comes to removing cancer? Like, we got 90% of it out. That's a B. Or, or, or to go back to the garden, what about most of the way done when it comes to removing those noxious weeds? I mean, yeah, there's a few of them in there, but it'll be fine. Or, or to go back to the building analogy, if you've contracted with someone to build a house and they get 90% done and quit, what are you going to do with that? Like, 90% of the outlets are grounded correctly. Or, or 90% of the roof has shingles on it. 90% of the windows have been installed. It's still a little breezy in that other bedroom. Uh, 90% of the natural gas piping has been sealed really well. You know, you just... It's kind of like a football team after driving the ball all the way down the field, getting to the 10-yard line and saying, you know what, I think 10, the 10-yard 10 line is pretty good, and quitting, right? There are some things where the difference between most of the way and all the way is no big deal. But then there are some things where 90% is 0%. And that's what Israel finds out in chapter 2 when they fail inspection and discover that, that stopping short of their mission is breaking their covenant with God. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Gilgal, uh, if you're familiar with Joshua in chapters 4 and 5, that's the, that's the city, that's the site where Israel crossed over the Jordan and, and had their first Passover in the new land a big deal. We're not there anymore. The angel of the Lord comes from there to here, and through this angel, the Lord reminds Israel what He's done for them, how I brought you up from the land of Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers, that land I promised. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars." That was the arrangement. These were their orders. But now the inspector gives his report. Middle of verse 2. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? You've not obeyed my voice. They have failed inspection. They have broken their covenant. Not by a wholesale disobedience, 
but by a half-hearted obedience, by attempting to accomplish God's mission on their own terms, in their own way. But when it comes to God's covenant with Israel, half-hearted obedience is wholesale disobedience. Carrying out God's mission on our own terms is abandoning His mission. And there are consequences for this. Again, Israel might be failing to keep up their end of the deal, but God will be faithful to keep His part of the covenant, whether that means blessing their obedience or cursing their disobedience. And so, because of their disobedience, they brought themselves under God's covenant curse. Verse 3, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. This is exactly what they were warned would happen. This is what Moses said would happen if you don't drive them out. This is what Joshua said almost verbatim in his closing speech. You must drive them completely out. As one author puts it, to tolerate evil, however attractively it's packaged, is to bed with the devil and make a covenant with death. Whether because they believed that it was beyond their ability, like they've got iron chariots, we can't, we can't drive them out. I mean, when has a chariot ever stopped God, right? Or, or whether they believed it was, it was simply beyond their ambition, like we're okay with a bee here. Their refusal to root out idolatry is an invitation for idolatry to sink its roots into them. If you're, removing, if you're removing an aggressive cancer, 90% is 0%. As Tim Keller puts it, ultimately, either all of life is given to God in grateful, loving obedience, or none is. Part obedience, as we'll see in this book, trends toward non-obedience. And when Israel receives this word it seems to hit them hard. And verses 4 and 5 tell us they respond with weeping and then worship. The people lifted their voices and wept, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They seem to have gotten the message. They seem to be repenting. Will it make any difference? We'll have to see as we continue the story. But the question I want to land on this morning is this. How is Israel's story also our story? How is Israel's story also our story? When we are separated by thousands of years, uh, we're separated by a covenant. Like Israel's covenant at Sinai was fulfilled in a new covenant in Christ. And so not everything's going to be identical. For instance, while Israel was God's agent or instrument of judgment in that old covenant, the church does not play the same role. Uh, we're, we're not instruments of God's judgment in the same way. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Israel, He's everything they were to be and to do but failed to be and to do, He, as the fulfillment, takes up that role as the true judge, but He keeps that one to Himself. He doesn't share that function with His church. 
And so he deals with sin either at the cross or in the final judgment, but he does not ask us to be agents of his judgment on earth as the church. That's something he keeps to himself. Rather, we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and leave vengeance to the Lord. So not everything's identical. You know, our mission is not to drive idolaters out of a particular zip code, right? Um, but rather to bear witness to the life-changing grace of the gospel so that idolatry might be driven from the hearts of those who hear that word. That's, that's our mission. And so, so not everything's the same. The overall goal is actually the same, that, that God's will and purpose and plan and love and life would flourish. And many of the temptations we face are also the same. Temptations to cut corners in our mission, to stop short, to the temptation to look at the landscape, uh, the challenges that we face today in gospel ministry, and then recalibrate our efforts either based on what we decide our ability is or our ambition to, to pull back because I don't think we can do that or, or I'm not sure we want to go that far. In a phrase, we are tempted to do the Lord's work in our own way. The Lord's work in our own way rather than in the Lord's way. And we might not think that's a big deal. And we're still doing the Lord's work. Israel is still doing the mission. Ray Ortland, a pastor and author, has reflected on this, and I want to quote him at length here because I cannot say it any better. He writes that your life and mine are not so simple as a question of doing the Lord's work versus doing the devil's work. We face not two but three possibilities. Doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way, doing the Lord's work in our own way, or doing the devil's work. And the great divide is not between two and three, but between one and two. To do the Lord's work in the Lord's way is to humble ourselves and prayerfully depend on the power of the Holy Spirit according to Scripture alone moment by moment. To do the Lord's work in our own way is to move forward with good intentions and true theology and just keep doing what seems obvious and successful and even right. But on that final day, the Lord will look at it and say, this belongs not to me, but to you. It was not for me, but for your own glory. I do not see it as an accomplishment I see it as a hindrance, and it will fall from our hands forever. It gets worse. To do the Lord's work in our own way is to risk doing the devil's work. When Peter tried to persuade Jesus to bypass the cross, the Lord said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Matthew 16. So how did Peter go so shockingly wrong? Jesus explained, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Peter did not have to set his mind on the things of Satan to become useful to Satan. All he had to do was set his mind on the things of man, on obvious, understandable human things like survival, popularity, saving face, and so forth. That's all it takes. It's easy, even natural. Peter had not decided for Satan. He had just proceeded in his own way without allowing himself to be overruled by the counterintuitive ways of God revealed in Scripture, end quote. And so it is with Israel stopping short. They're not deciding for idolatry. They're just doing things on their own terms. As, as Dale Ralph Davis explains, the, the picture that Judges 1 gives us is of an Israel in substantial control of Canaan, like a people clearly successful, though certainly disobedient. Pragmatic success and spiritual failure, a strange but possible combination. It's not just what we do for God that matters, it's how we do it. Are we doing it on His terms, in His way, not ours? Davis continues, it is possible for the believer's life to display the marks of success and yet be failure in the eyes of God. Christian success, whether personal or in the form of a glossy evangelical enterprise, is not necessarily the same as pleasing God. And that's a word we need to hear, I think, today and every day in, in it. As we think about our mission and our effort to come alongside each person we meet to help them take their next step with Jesus, as we think about the mission we saw in the book of Philippians, this call to partnership in the gospel, as we think about what we talked about last month, looking at our discipleship pathway and how we pursue Jesus and move forward, in all of our effort to know Jesus and make Him known, we will always be tempted to give ourselves to whatever seems to work, to what makes sense, to what we can handle, to what people respond to, even if it doesn't flow from the power of the Spirit or follow the pattern of the cross. But if it doesn't flow from the cross, if it's not just the Lord's work but the Lord's way, that's stopping short in our mission to make Christ known, in our mission to know Him personally, which might feel more manageable and might even look successful, but it doesn't bring God glory. It might bring us glory, and it doesn't last. And as we're going to see next week, it does not reproduce the faith for the next generation. It is amazing that the, the train wreck that unfolds in the book of Judges does not come from a heavy-handed rejection of God and His covenant, but rather from a half-hearted obedience to it. Again, Israel had not decided for idolatry. All they did was tolerate it. They forgot who the Lord is and what He'd done for them, so they tolerated other gods among Him. 
And therein lies another word of instruction for us, that if we are to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, it means never forgetting who the Lord is or what He's done for us through the cross. The God who saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, that same God has worked salvation for all peoples through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. At the end of the day, we are no different from ancient Israel. Reading this story is like looking in the mirror. We're no different from ancient Israel, and we're no different from the pagan nations they failed to drive out. All of us left to ourselves give our worship and our love and our loyalty to something other than the God who made us. Even the most religious among us, the best we can come up with is a half-hearted obedience, which is in fact a wholesale disobedience. But, but Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Judges pushes us forward to look for a king who gets it right. And that's the king we have in Jesus, a king who, who not only rescues us from sin's penalty, but actually strengthens us for obedience. Jesus is the one who makes doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way possible. Apart from Him, it's utterly impossible. As Keller explains, it's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings or from worshiping God wholeheartedly. It's our lack of faith in His strength, in His strength. He's the one we must rely on. And so, it's worth asking ourselves, when we find ourselves stopping short, it's worth asking ourselves, Keller continues, where am I saying I can't, but God is saying you won't? Where am I saying I can't, but God is saying you won't? There may be all sorts of things in our lives which we think we are unable to do, but which actually we're refusing to do. We're stopping short. We are forgetting the Lord and His gospel. It's not just what we do for God that matters, but how we do it. We're called to carry out His mission on His terms, not ours. And Jesus is the one who supplies the strength and the grace to make that possible. And so, what this book is ultimately going to show us is our desperate need for Jesus. That's, that's where the story's headed. There is hope amid the chaos of life in this fallen world. There's hope in this dark and dreadful story, which is only going to get worse next week. There's hope that summons us to a wholehearted obedience and, and ultimately points us forward beyond the pages of Judges and beyond the land of Canaan to meet us with that hope in the face of Christ. That's where this story is going. As the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We have something that the people and judges didn't have. Let us hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess our utter need for you. Lord, it is uncomfortable to look into a book like this and see ourselves in the mirror. But Lord, we need it. We need it because we're reminded through that of of how we cannot follow you on our own. We weren't designed to follow you on our own. We were designed to depend on you. And Lord, help us as we look into this book, as we wrestle with the honest difficulties of life in this fallen world, help us to see and hear the hope that we have in Christ. And help us to trust Him every single day, to do Your work in Your way, not reducing it because it'll be easier or whatever reason we might have to to do it on our own terms. Let us trust the Lord to do Your work in Your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.